One last time to the Old Testament book of Joel, to chapter 3, and we'll read in just a moment the entirety of the chapter. Father, thank you uh, that we can come to your word this morning, that we can come to this book that has spoken to us for three weeks now, and expect that you will speak again through the prophet Joel by your Holy Spirit. So speak to us, God, speak to us about your kindness to your people, your love for your people, about the coming of your Son for your people. God, encourage your people today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Joel chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, then I, will render, then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. They have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Moreover, what are you to me, O Tyre, Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you rendering me a recompense? But if you do recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense on your head. Since you have taken my silver and my gold, brought my precious treasures to your temples, and sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their territory, behold, I am going to arouse them from the place where you have sold them and return your recompense on your head. Also, I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hands of the sons of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a distant nation. For the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. And in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Egypt will become a waste, and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah, in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem for all generations, and I will avenge their blood which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. 
Sometimes when you are driving through the mountains, the various peaks before you look almost as if they are stacked one right after the other. So that you see two peaks standing almost shoulder to shoulder, one fading slightly behind the other. And you may imagine that once you have reached the valley floor beyond the first peak, you will immediately begin to ascend the second one. But then as you drive along, something strange happens. You summit the first mountain, expecting the next mountain to follow in immediate succession. And you discover, actually, that after that first mountain, there's a stretch of road, perhaps four or five miles long before you in the valley, before you reach the second peak. From a distance, it looked like you could almost throw a stone from one mountaintop to the other. But once you have reached the first milestone, you find that there was much more space in between than you may have first realized. And so it is sometimes when you read the Old Testament prophets. Very often as they look out into the future, the prophets place two mountain peaks of history side by side in their prophetic visions so that on the surface of the printed page, it appears as those those two prophesied events will occur back to back with almost no time lapse in between. Such is the case, for instance, in Isaiah chapter 9, that famous passage. In that one poetic sermon, Isaiah predicts both the birth of the Messiah and also the coming age of world peace that that Messiah will usher in. And he predicts them right back to back. Just listen to how quickly he moves from one mountaintop to the next Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Now, just reading those two verses back to back, we might have imagined, if we lived in Isaiah's day, that that time when God's Son will rule from sea to sea, world without end, when the government will rest on His shoulders and He will be all in all, we might imagine that that time period would follow immediately after the Holy Child's birth because those two events seem to happen so rapidly together here in Isaiah 9. But now that we've crossed the first mountain peak... Now that the child has been born and the son has been given, we realize that there is quite a stretch of road between Bethlehem and the New Jerusalem. There's quite a long gap, humanly speaking, between the first coming of Christ and the second coming when all that Isaiah says will finally be fulfilled in its completeness. And such is the case also today in the book of Joel. Chapters 2 and 3 place before us two great mountain peaks, it seems to me, of history. At the end of chapter 2 last week, we heard Joel prophesying what we normally call the first coming of Christ. He predicted the darkness and the bloodletting of the day of his crucifixion in verses 30 and 31. He predicted the giving of the Holy Spirit in power on the day of Pentecost there in verses 28 and 29. And then today, he mentions that same time period in chapter 3, verse 1, when he refers to those days when the fortunes of Jerusalem and Judah will be restored. All of that, it seems to me, is reference to Jesus' first coming. 
But then notice that in the very next breath, in chapter 3, verse 2, Joel begins to discuss events that seem to belong to what we call the second coming, when God will enter into judgment with all the nations in the valley of Jehoshaphat, when he will call them all before him to enter into judgment. As with Isaiah, Joel's movement here from one mountain peak to the other, from Christ's initial coming to that great day of God's wrath, happens almost in the blink of an eye on the printed page. And we might understand, again, if some of the people who read Joel's prophecy in Joel's day discern no gap between these two mountain peaks, if they considered perhaps that the coming of the Messiah, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and the end of the world might not all happen in a very short period of time, one event right after the other. After all, God's judgment of the nations, Joel said, will happen, verse 1, in those days of the blood of Christ and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the refreshing in Jerusalem. The mountains here seem to be standing almost shoulder to shoulder in chapters 2 and 3. But having crossed over the first mountain peak, having passed by the first coming of Jesus on the timeline of history, we recognize, I think, that those days which Joel speaks about, those days of refreshing, those days of the Holy Spirit, are much longer days than Joel's countrymen may have thought. There's a great stretch of road, in other words, between the mountains of the first and the second comings. And I say all that to say, to help you place yourself in the timeline uh, of biblical history, but also to remind you that it's good if we learn to read the prophets and the book of Revelation in just that way. Like the various peaks when you drive through the Rocky Mountains, events that seem on the pages of Scripture to be very near together aren't always the case. Sometimes they prove to be further apart than we thought. And so we must be careful lest we find ourselves like many people in the first century who were bumfuzzled that Jesus now that he had come, was not ascending to his earthly throne as quickly as they thought he would. It's difficult to tell sometimes how close we may be to the next great mountain on God's timeline, but we are living in those days, Joel 3.1, when the Holy Spirit has been poured out, when God has refreshed his people, and one thing is certain when you live in those days. Joel says, in those days... I will gather all the nations, says the Lord. It seems fairly certain in the book of Joel and in the book of Isaiah and in the book of Revelation that having crossed the great mountain peak of Jesus' first coming, the next summit in the Alps of God's history is what Joel calls here the Valley of Decision. We are living in those days and at that time in which the very next grand event on God's timeline is what Joel here variously refers to in chapter 3 as the Valley of Decision, verse 14, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, verses 2 and 12, and the Day of the Lord, also in verse 14. There's a sense, in other words, in which we're already living in the last days, in the last epoch of the world as we know it in the days in which all that we now await on God's great timeline is the coming of Christ and God's judgment of the world and the new heavens and the new earth. That's the great event, the next great event on God's calendar. And as we've been saying, it's hard to tell from our vantage point how near or far we may be. But again, one thing is certain in this book 
of Joel. The day of the Lord is near. He said that not only in this chapter, but he has said that again and again, reminding us the day of the Lord is near. And as we've read in these final two chapters of Joel, we remember that that day will be a day, first of all, of judgment. That's what the word Jehoshaphat means, incidentally. The Lord judges. So the valley of Jehoshaphat is the valley of the Lord's judgment, the valley of the Lord's decision. And he will decide in that day. He will judge in that day. All the nations will be gathered in that day, in the valley of God's judgment, in the valley of his decision, and those men and women and children who have not willingly bowed the knee to King Jesus will in that day be driven to their knees by God's judgment. So that whether joyfully or through gritted teeth, as we read and as we sang, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That will happen. And that day of decision, that valley of God's judgment, is prepared for even you and me if we're without Christ. Now Joel here in this chapter specifically mentions some of the ancient nations that spurned the Lord and persecuted his people, Tyre and Sidon and Philistia, Egypt and so on. But he also reminds us in verse 2 that in that day all the nations will be called to account. You and I as part of them. Men and women from America and Canada and Britain and Africa and every other place under the sun will be called to account in that great day. No people group will be exempt. And the question, as we've been saying from the book of Joel again and again, simply will be in that day, are you ready? Are you really ready that the Lord should come? Have you repented of your sins? Are you right with God? I'm asking you that this morning. Before we leave this book of Joel, he's been asking us again and again and again, and we need to be certain when that great day comes, when the sheep are divided from the goats, when God goes to war against his enemies, when the armies have beaten their pruning hooks into spears, as we read. The only question that will matter for you in that day, as the children were asked on the last night of vacation Bible school, is whose side are you on? Are you living your life right now in opposition to God? Or are you on his side? Have you continued going your own way? Ignoring his calls to repentance? Have you done anything with the book of Joel? Or are you still sitting on the throne of your own life? Whose side are you on? Whose side will you be on in that great day of judgment? What a sight it will be as we read here in verses 9 through 12. The enemies of God will gather in that last day in all their pomp, all their preparation for battle. The swords will be polished, the spears will be sharpened, the banners will be unfurled. Men will have mustered their courage and formed their ranks. The colors of the flags of the nations of the earth will be bedecking the hillsides. The war chants and the beating of drums will echo Through the land with seismic force, the kings of the earth, perhaps you can imagine, will ride out in front of their men, giving impassioned speeches, stirring up their courage. But what will the outcome be to all of this pomp and circumstance? Well, in the book of Revelation, we're told that on that great day, the Lord Jesus will clear the battlefield with one sweep of his sword. And here we're told in verse 13 that he will do it with a single swipe of his sickle. 
And the enemies of God, like so many grapes, will be cast into the eternal winepress of God's fury. This is not simply poetic language to say God's angry at sin. God will judge the nations. There will be a gathering in the valley of decision. That great battle that the end of the book of Revelation speaks about, which is actually no battle at all, but a complete walkover in favor of the Lord and complete devastation for his enemies. The day of the Lord is indeed very great and awesome, Joel told us in chapter 211. And who can endure it? No enemy of God will walk out of that valley of judgment alive. No one can stand in the face of that great and terrible day of God's decision. And the only hope that you and I have before that great day comes is that we lay down our weapons and come over to the Lord's side. That we lay down our sins and flee to the Lord in repentance. And I want to ask you one more time before we leave this book, have you done that? Are you sure that when that day comes, you won't be found on the wrong side? Have you repented of your sins? Are you trusting in the death of Jesus as your only hope? Have you come over to God's side? And I urge you to settle that question today. If there's any doubt in your mind, you get on your face today before the Lord because it's hard to tell from our vantage point how soon the next mountain in God's timeline may arise. And woe to us if we delay repentance until it's too late. Put in the sickle, verse 13, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. It's on that latter sentence that I want now to focus for the rest of our time. We've been warned once again of the fate that will befall those who are not God's people. But what does God say in these last days to those who are his people? What is the flip side of the end of the world coin, as it were? Yes, the Lord will roar from Zion. Yes, he will enter into judgment with his enemies. Yes, blood will be spilt in that day like the overflow from a full wine press. But in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the terror, we read the Lord is a refuge for his people. The Lord in that day will shelter his beloved ones. The Lord will deliver his saints into everlasting joy and rest. It's a day of great judgment that's coming and it's a day of great refuge and rescue for the people of God. And I want to show you in this passage three ways that Joel prophesies that the Lord will be a refuge for his people. First of all, in that day, the Lord will vindicate his people. The Lord will vindicate his people. We saw in verse 2 that the Lord will summon all the nations to the valley of his decision. But I want you to notice in the verses that follow with whom, with which nations, the Lord has a particular bone of contention. Yes, all the nations will be judged for their sins, but God has an even more heated quarrel with those who have scattered his people, verse 2. With those who have mistreated his people, verse 3. 
with those who have dispossessed his people, verse 6, with those who have persecuted his people, verse 19. The Philistines, the Sidonians, the Tyrians, the Egyptians, and the Edomites, and so on. That's God's greatest quarrel. He will judge all sin, but he has the greatest judgment awaiting those who have harmed, those who have maligned, those who have mistreated his people. One of God's great acts on that last day will be to enter into judgment with sinners, as he says in verse 2, on behalf of my people. The Lord will vindicate his people in that day. He will contend in the last day with those who mistreat them. It's the same thing we said a few Wednesdays ago in Revelation chapter 6. When those who were martyred for their testimony of Jesus asked the Lord, how long will you refrain from avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? God's response was not to say, oh, I'm kind and merciful. I would never hurt a flea. It's not God's response, is it? How long will you refrain from avenging us? And he says, a little while longer. But a little while longer means not forever. And when the nations enter into the valley of Jehoshaphat, the waiting will be no more. God, he tells us in verse 21, has not yet avenged all his people's losses. But in that great final day, the ledgers will all be balanced. God will avenge all the suffering of all of his saints. He will pour out fierce wrath on those Egyptians who enslaved his people in the days of Moses. He will pour out judgment on those marauders who carried Daniel and Jeremiah and others into exile. He'll pour out wrath on those pagans who came yearly into the land of Canaan in the book of Judges and stole the Israelites' crops. He'll pour out wrath on cruel Haman who sought to wipe the Jews completely off the face of the earth. And in that day, God will also surely bring down judgment upon those emperors in the early centuries after Christ who placed his saints in the arena to be torn and eaten by wild beasts. God will pour out his wrath on policemen in China who imprisoned his Chinese pastors, upon those radicals who slew his missionaries in India, upon those gangs who are burning churches in Africa, upon those Muslim men who beat their wives in Central Asia when they convert to Christ. And God will pour out his wrath on those predators, verse 3, who abuse little boys and girls in his American churches. Be sure of it. I will enter into judgment, the Lord says, verse 2, on behalf of my people, and I will avenge their blood, verse 21, which I have not avenged. I will not allow their persecutors to go unpunished. They may get away with their crimes for a little while longer, Revelation 6, but the time will come here in verse 4 when I will swiftly, speedily return their recompense on their heads. And those facts are placed in Joel 2 both as a warning to those who persecute, but even more so as a comfort for God's people. And I want you to hear them that way this morning. God sees when you are mistreated. God knows about the abuse that some of you are subject to. God knows about the unfair treatment at work. He knows about the threats that have been leveled at you. He knows about family members who have turned away from you because of Christ. 
He knows about our brothers and sisters in Christ in the Muslim world this morning who live their lives in terror over what may happen on any given Sunday when they come to worship at the hands of their neighbors or their government. He sees the widows and the children in North Korea eking out an existence while their husbands and fathers are locked up in prison for their faith. And he will see everything clearly and will be taking names when some of our children or grandchildren go to the ends of the earth with the gospel and suffer at the hands of evil men for doing so. And not only does he see the actions of these persecutors, but he says to us in Joel 3, I will enter into judgment with them there in the valley of decision. Never forget that those who touch the Lord's people touch the apple of his eye. And he will not delay long to avenge any wrong that is done to you. So you may rest with the martyrs in Revelation 6 a little while longer, trusting that God will make it right in the end. In that great day, in the valley of decision, the Lord will vindicate his people. But notice also that in that great day, the Lord will bless his people. The Lord will bless his people. We saw last week, after the locusts had stripped everything bare in Old Testament Jerusalem, God promised that he would restore their vines and their fields and their fruit trees. He promised to send the early and the late rains to water the ground. He promised that their wine barrels would once again be full and overflow. And surely we said he fulfilled those promises in Old Testament times. Surely the people in Judah did not languish under that famine forever. God restored their fortunes. But this morning, I want you to see, particularly in chapter 3, verse 18, that the blessings on Judah that God poured out in Old Testament times were only the samplers before the great feast that is coming. For when the day of the Lord comes, when the valley of Jehoshaphat and all the rest of planet earth have been cleared of the sinful refuse, we are told the Lord will create a new heavens and a new earth revelation. And we're told here in Joel 3 that in that day, The mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Now again, that sounds a great deal like what we read at the end of the book of Revelation, does it not? We're told there that God's people will dwell in a land that's fairer than day. The Lord himself will be their light, a land which flows with streams of the water of life and abundance, a land where the fruit trees will bear their fruit all 12 months of the year and where God's people will never again hunger or thirst. That's what we're told about the new heavens and the new earth, and that's what we're waiting for. And it seems to me that's what Joel speaks about here. We're waiting for that day, not just the day of our death, but that great day when Christ will come and all things will be made new. Because as wonderful as it will be to go to heaven when we die, as wonderful as it will be to be absent from the body and present with the Lord, how much better to be present in the body and present with the Lord. 
How much better to have both your body and your soul enjoy the Lord's delights. That's what Joel's describing here in verse 18. Eternal but tangible blessings that we will enjoy not only spiritually but with our five senses. In that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water. A day is coming when God's people won't any longer work by the sweat of their brows. A day is coming when the thorns and the thistles will disappear, when the blight and the famine and the inflation at the supermarket will be unheard of, because the hillsides, Joel says, will be so covered with fruit that they'll drip with sweet wine, and the farms will be so laden with cattle that it will almost be like milk flows out of the hills like a stream. And the streams themselves, we're told, will never dry up. And everyone in that day will be healthy and happy and will live forever and ever. Now, it's true that today heaven is populated by souls and not by bodies. But don't think that we are destined to spend eternity floating in the clouds. No, Joel is describing here a physical place in verse 18. When Christ comes, he will bring a new heaven and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells, and that's where we'll go to be always with the Lord, to a place where every need will be met and every tear will be wiped away and every thirst will be slaked and where the years that the locusts or the unemployment or the cancer or the arthritis have taken away from you will be so distant in your memory as almost to seem like a dream. Have you ever thought about what it would have been like to live in the Garden of Eden? Just try to picture it in your mind. All the delights, all of the fruits, the crystal clear waters, the very tangible peace and safety and health and rest of that place. That is what eternity will be for God's people. Real, tangible blessing. You will be able literally to taste its fruit and none of it will be forbidden. There will not be any serpent there to lead you astray. No, in that day, we're told, on the contrary, the nursing child will play beside the hole of the cobra, Isaiah 11, and no one will be afraid. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's what we had to look forward to, a very real world, a very real Eden-like blessing. Have you been hungry in this life? Some of you have. In those days, after the valley of decision, you will be filled. Are you in pain in this life? In those days, the lame will leap for joy. Are you afraid? In those days, Isaiah 11, they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Do you sometimes feel like you'll never overcome your sin? In the new heavens and the new earth, you will be like him, for you will see him as he is. Everything that's wrong in this world, every residue that is left by the curse, every sorrow and sin and pain and need will be made right in that day. We said a week ago that God loves to overflow his people's wine vats. He loves to pour blessings into the lap of the humble and the penitent. And many times he does so even in this life. 
Sometimes we only wait a few years before he restores what the stripping locusts have eaten. But sometimes, as we said, we may not see our wine vats full in this life. Sometimes our weeping may last the whole of our night in this world. But in the morning, Psalm 30, verse 5, in the great day when the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings, there will be a shout of joy. And in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim, the valley of the acacia trees. I know how wise we are if we learn to live for that day instead of always wringing our hands over the difficulties of this one. So then, let me point out that we've seen two things so far. In that great day, the Lord will vindicate his people. And in that great day, the Lord will bless his people. But there's one more blessing, best of all, to be had in the day of the Lord. And that is to say that in that day, the Lord will dwell among his people. Now, before we look at that intently, let me point out to you that you don't have to be a Christian to enjoy this last point, that previous point of the sermon. You don't have to be a Christian to wish for the blessings of Joel 3.18. You don't have to love Jesus to hope that your life will someday become like heaven on earth. You and I both know plenty of selfish, ungodly people, perhaps we used to be among them, who would love to live in a Joel 3.18 world. So long as God was not there to meddle with their lives. But what makes us Christians is not so much that we look forward to the mountains dripping with sweet wine, though we do. Not so much that we look forward to our joints finally working without pain, though they will. But what makes us really Christian is that we look forward more than all of those other things put together to that day when the Lord himself, verse 17, will make his dwelling in Zion. To that day when Christ will return to this earth and we will always be with him. That's what will make heaven heaven. Verse 17. And that's what we'll be looking forward to in the new heavens and the new earth. That Christ will dwell with his people. What makes heaven heaven And what makes the new heaven and the new earth so wonderful is that we'll not only enjoy the brooks of Judah in verse 18, but we'll actually dwell like lambs alongside the lion of Judah. He will be there with us. So we thrill, and rightly so, at all the promised blessings of heaven and of that new heavens and new earth, but only if we have the greatest of all friends to enjoy them with us. If you're married or have been, you know exactly what I mean. You could have the loveliest home in the world. An indoor pool, a golf course in the backyard, guys, a jacuzzi in every bathroom, a staff of servants to wait on you hand and foot. But it would never feel quite like home if your beloved wife wasn't there with you, would it? If your husband wasn't there to enjoy the hot tub with you. And so would the new earth be for all who truly love Jesus if the bridegroom were not there. It wouldn't quite be home, would it? No matter what we read about in verse 18. Because he is the one who makes all the joys enjoyable. 
It's His great love that gives us reason to celebrate with the wine flowing from the mountains. We want our sight restored to 2020 so that we can see Him. We want our ears and our hearing back so that we can listen to Him. We want our knees and our ankles and our hips and our joints to work properly so that we can run to Him. Who could sit at eternity's tables eating, drinking, and being merry if the bridegroom were absent from the feast? No one who loves the bridegroom. For He is the one who makes heaven so heavenly. And He is the one whose presence will bring light and joy and celebration to the new heavens and the new earth. What will it be like to see the scars in His forehead where that crown of thorns was jammed down for your salvation? What a thrill will it be like Thomas to put our hands into his side and to run our fingers across the nail prints in his palms and to know that our names, as Isaiah said, are written in those wounds. What an honor to bend low with the sinful woman in Luke 7 and literally kiss Jesus' feet. What a privilege to have him walk with us as with the men on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 and to explain to us the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And what a joy to see him once again with our own two eyes take the little children into his arms and bless them. And what a letdown if we should even possess all the joys of Joel 3.18 if we should dwell in the very Garden of Eden itself, but never have the privilege of being embraced in the real physical arms of our Lord Jesus. But such will not be our fate if we're in Christ, will it? For we are going not merely to a place of great blessing. We are going not merely to have our thirst slaked and our tears wiped and our bodies restored to health. In addition to all those things and making each one of them a pleasure truly worth enjoying, we are going to the place where, best of all, verse 17, the Lord himself will dwell among his people once more. And then you will know, verse 17, that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain.